You know, if I were to take one of these uh, screws and I needed to put it in a piece of wood, I'd probably use one of three tools. I might use a, a, a screwdriver, like this one, or I might use a drill, or I could use an impact driver. Now, if I were to use a screwdriver, we've all used a screwdriver before, it's sort of, uh, uh, I mean, it's easy enough, but it's sort of tedious, and it's slow, and, you know, you, you have that screw, and you're trying to put it down in the piece of wood, and you just have to turn it, and turn it, and turn it, and you have to apply all of this lateral force. You know what I mean by lateral force? I have to push it this way in order to make that screw go down. And it doesn't seem like that's the best way to make something go down, to push it to the side. Or I could use a drill, and drill's a lot easier, a lot quicker, of course, you know. And again, same thing with the drill and a screw. You, you push, the force actually goes mostly laterally in order to push that screw down. But if I were to use an impact driver, well, an impact driver is just a little bit different than a drill. And I, wanna, I want you to see a very brief video, and I want you to listen to the difference between a drill and an impact driver. That repeated thumping you heard, boom, 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 with the impact driver, that's what makes it special. Not only does it apply lateral force in order to turn the screw, but when it meets resistance, it also repeatedly pushes downward into that which resists. The resistance given in to the force, that gives in to the force, by the repeated impact. Now, if you thought that I would find a spiritual lesson in this, you would be very smart. <laughs> and obviously, you yourself being willing to be impacted by such obvious tactics like that. As we've observed before, an author by the name of Paul Tripp says, God's toolbox. The tools that he can use to accomplish his purpose includes everything. God is unshakably sovereign. God can use whoever he will to do whatever he wills, whenever he wills it, for the sake of his people and the sound of his glory. And there is a specific particular tool in God's toolbox that can make a deep impact in our own lives. It can break through the resistance in our own lives. This one tool can begin to change everything in your life, absolutely everything in your life. Now, this change doesn't happen all at once, but it's like that impact driver. Boom, 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 boom. The more we use the tool, the closer we get to finding fulfillment of purpose. The purpose of every screw is to go into something. And the purpose of your life is to do as God has designed you to do. 
This tool that I'm talking about that's in God's toolbox, it is the ultimate impact tool. And you may not have ever thought of it this way, but today I want to show you from the third chapter of Ezra the impact that worship can have in your life. Worship is the ultimate impact tool. So I invite you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. Now those of you that were here last week and you've been brave enough to return after we read Ezra 1 and 2 and that long list of Hebrew names in Ezra 2, I've got good news. We only have 13 verses today. And there's a few names in there, but not too bad. And so we're going to do this. We're going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll go back and we'll learn a few lessons about how worship can change your life. In Ezra 3, chapter, excuse me, verse 1, we read, When the seventh month arrived, and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. They celebrated the Festival of Shelters as prescribed and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offering and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions, as well as the free will offerings brought to the Lord. Verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They gave money to the stonecutters and artisans and gave food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so they would bring cedarwood from Lebanon to Joppa by sea, according to the authorization given them by King Cyrus of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned from Jerusalem from the captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites, who were 20 years old or more, to supervise the work on the Lord's house. Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmio with his sons, and the sons of Judah, and of Henadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever." Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites and family heads, who had seen the first temple, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. 
The people could not distinguish between the joyful shouting from that of the weeping, because the people were shouting so loudly, and the sound was heard far away. When you and I learn to worship God just as God's people here relearned how to worship Him, it changes everything in your life. And so I want us to go back about 2,500 years to the time of this writing and understand the big picture because there are some lessons we can learn from it. The big picture is essentially this. God chose people, the Jews, to be His people. And they chose to disobey Him and disregard the covenant that they had with Him. So... God raised up the ancient empires of Assyria first and then Babylon to conquer God's people and to take many of them into exile. And then God raised up Cyrus, king of Persia, a third ancient empire, to conquer Babylon. And then God stirred up Cyrus's heart to let God's people return to the land that God had given them and also allow them to re-begin their worship of God. And so that's what we find in Ezra 3. In Ezra 3, they're back. They're ready to worship the Lord. And as they worship God, they will teach us a few very important lessons about worshiping God and how it can impact your life. Number one, worshiping God destroys fear. Worshiping God destroys fear. Think about it. God's people had recently moved back into their land, and they had some longtime neighboring countries, some neighbors of theirs that probably were not too happy to see them again. They didn't like it that they were back. And now, in Ezra 3, all of God's people left all of their homes. They left all of their villages that they just returned to. And they all made their way up to the mountain, up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem sits up high, literally. They made their way up to Jerusalem. And they left all of their possessions unguarded. Completely unguarded. Their property was at risk. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here have been coming to church for an hour or two? Left your house unlocked intentionally? No one? Okay. Y'all are moving, so, you know. <laughs> you probably got it all packed in, in Oklahoma already. But we don't do that. How many of you intentionally left your cars unlocked? We don't do that. Not even at church. Why? Let's be frank. There are people in our community that we don't trust. That's why we call them criminals. They've proven themselves to be of the character of criminals. They commit crimes. Well, imagine that you're not just gone to church for a couple of hours, but you're gone for days, I mean days, in order to worship God. And even if you didn't go, even if you remained there to guard your property against any uh, criminals that might come along, the truth be told that it would be very easy for a gang of marauders to overpower you. But that didn't stop God's people from worshiping God. Even though they feared their neighbors. They did not stop worshiping God. In fact, I believe they learned a very valuable lesson when they were out in exile. 
They learned this lesson, that the Lord is their only real security. And I think we need to learn that lesson too. God is our only real security. Now, you and I, if we were to be honest, we find a lot of security in our 401ks. We find a lot of security in our bank account and the property that we own. We find a lot of security in the government. But you know what? If we don't learn this very important lesson, we may learn it the hard way that God is our only real security. For 70 years, and for some of them it was even longer, God's people lived at the mercy of their masters. And they had no one to lean on but God. God made it that way. And I think they learned that lesson that they must rely on God. And now they've returned back home, and because they fear their neighbors, they leaned on God all the more. They believed, that's a very simple premise, that if we trust the Lord, He will protect us. If we trust the Lord, He will protect us. In Ezra 3, verse 3, look at what Scripture says. They set up the altar on its foundation and burnt, offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. I've got a question for you. When you're scared, where do you turn? You say, oh, I'm, I'm tough. I don't get scared of anything. I'm not just talking about bumps in the night. I'm talking about when you're worried, you're concerned, you're disturbed, you're agitated. Something's not right. And it, and it worries you. Something's out of your control. Where do you turn when something's out of your control? Believers should turn to the Lord. It's that simple. Believers should turn to the Lord. Safety is found in worshiping God. Let me explain. When you respond to fear and worry and doubt by worshiping God, what you're doing is you are claiming God's power to protect you. And not only are you claiming God's power to protect you, but by worshiping Him, you are declaring God's power. Both in this physical realm and the invisible realm we cannot see, you are declaring God's power to protect you. And not only are you declaring God's power to protect you, you're actually celebrating it. You're celebrating God's power to protect you. The worship of God is the celebration of a person that you know is real, you know is alive, and you know loves you. That is what the worship of God is. It is the celebration of Him. So when the enemy tries to intimidate you, tries to make you worry, oh no, look at the bills. Oh no, what am I going to do? Oh no, this problem is bigger than me. When the enemy tries to intimidate you, listen, your worship of the all-powerful Sovereign, Most High God overcomes any of the meaningless, insignificant tactics of the devil or his children. None of those intimidation tactics, none of those fears matter anymore because why? God inhabits the praises of His people. When you and I praise the Lord, God is there. He is very present with us. 
And if perchance the devil's children were to do to you what they once did to Stephen the martyr, the very same Son of Man who stood at the right hand of God ready to go to war then will likewise go to war today. For all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And that's the one that we worship. He is the one that we worship. The one with all authority. And so if you're afraid, you're scared, you're intimidated, you're fearful, you're hesitant, you're unsure, what do you need to do? You need to worship the Lord. Your eyes have gotten off of where they need to be. And you're looking at all of the enemies around you. Your eyes need to get back on the Lord. Worship Him. Second lesson. Worshiping God makes His Word personal. It brings it home. The Word of God might be to you just just a book gathering dust on the shelf. Or maybe the Word of God is personal. you. I want you to look at how closely and how precisely the people in Ezra's day sought to obey him in worship. In Ezra chapter 3 verse 1, in Ezra 3 6, both of these verses, they started worshiping God in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. Look at that. Ezra 3 1, when the seventh month arrived. Ezra 3 6, on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And you ask, what's so special about the seventh month? I'm so glad you asked that question. I was thinking the same thing. Here's what's so special about the seventh month. The seventh month is the most sacred month in the Jewish calendar. The seventh month, actually the first month of the Jewish calendar, uh, begins in the month of Nisan. It's, It's not the car, okay? Uh, It's called the month of Nisan, and you scroll all the way around. Nisan begins about April for us, okay? And you scroll all the way around to the seventh month. And in the seventh month, it's sort of hard to see on that diagram, but there are three festivals, three very important days that all occur in the seventh month. Three sacred festivals. On, On day one, it is a day of solemn rest, and it's proclaimed with trumpets. Sometimes it's called the day of trumpets. What a cool day that would be to experience. On day 10 is the most holy day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then five days later starts the day, excuse me, the week-long festival of sometimes it's called booths, sometimes it's called tabernacles. The translation I read from now, it calls it shelters because Americans don't know what a booth or a tabernacle is. We don't even have phone booths anymore. And so, you know, you think of a tabernacle. What's that, a big glass church? No, a tabernacle's a tent. It's a shelter. It's a temporary shelter, one you can pack up and move away. And so, for a week, beginning on the 15th, they begin this celebration called the Festival of Shelters. The very first thing they did in verse 2 was this. They began to build the altar of Israel's God. The altar of Israel's God. In order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation, 
and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it to the Lord. That picture that you see is an actual life-size recreation of the altar. And it stands in Israel to this day. And that's what it would look like. And they began offering burnt offerings to the Lord. Very precisely, they obeyed and followed the instructions for burnt offerings. Then, they took it a step further. On the 15th day of the seventh month, verse 4 of Ezra 3 tells us this. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed and and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. Now, this festival of shelters, what was it all about? Well, what happened was, in the, in the Exodus, hundreds of years before, when God's people were freed from slavery in Egypt, you might remember that they spent 40, day, 40 years, actually, wandering around in the wilderness, and they had to live somewhere. They lived in these tents. They lived in these shelters, these tabernacles. They had no home of their own. And so they had to live in tents. And so when they finally arrived in the promised land, in the land that God had given them, they began this celebration, this annual commemoration of God's faithfulness and providing for them as they lived in the tents. And so on the 15th day of the seventh month, they live in a tent for the whole week. In fact, practicing Jews today do the same. They'll set up a tent in their backyard and live there the entire week. They'll eat there, they'll sleep there, and then they'll go to work and do whatever else they need to do. Jews in New York City, living in skyscrapers, will set up a tent out on their balcony, 60, 100 feet in the air. And live in the tent. It's, it's an amazing thing to see. And so that's the festival of shelters. Well, they began to recreate the festival of shelters very precisely. But the people of Ezra's day didn't stop there. Next, they continued giving their offerings. How? According to the Torah. According to the law of God. Verse 5 says, After that, they offered the regular burnt offering and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions, as well as the free will offerings brought to the Lord. These people wanted to follow God's word and God's plan so much that the next thing they did, they even rebuilt the temple to as much as they could, the very precise specifications that Solomon had built it centuries before. Verse 7, it says, They gave money to the stonecutters and artisans, and they gave, pay attention, food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre way up north, so that they, the people way up north, would bring cedar wood from Lebanon to Joppa by way of the sea. Centuries before, do you know what happened? Solomon provided food, drink, and oil to King Hiram, king of Tyre, way up north, in exchange for the Lebanon cedars to be rafted down to Joppa by sea. Do you see how precisely they are re-obeying God's word? They did it to this extent. We read in the Hebrew Scriptures that Solomon began building the temple in the second Jewish month of the year. Guess what they decided to do in Ezra's day? We read about it in Ezra 3.8. 
in the second month of the second year, after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, all who had returned to Jerusalem from the captivity began to build. Do you see how precisely they want to obey God? And that preciseness of their obedience continues. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 we read, When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel, centuries before, had instructed. Hundreds of years before, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34, King David instructed his priests and his Levites to sing this, Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And now, in Ezra's day, what do we read in verse 11? They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. For he is good. His faithful love. And here's where it became personal. To Israel. Endures forever. They added to Israel. Why? Because they personally felt, sensed, knew how faithful God had been to them. Why were they doing this? What were God's people up to? Why were they so intentionally precise in every last detail? In reproducing what had happened before, here's what they were doing. They were putting God's Word back into practice. They were restoring obedience to God, even to the last detail, as much as they could. You might say... Does it really matter if they were like that precise? I mean, if you have good intentions, isn't that good enough? I mean, does it really matter if you do things exactly as God says? Can't you sort of ballpark it? Close enough? You know, grenades type thing. Just sort of get close. Listen. I think that God is perfectly capable of answering that question. And so I'm going to let God answer that question for us. Okay? Do you know why Judah's exile lasted exactly 70 years? I mean, why not 10 years? Don't you think you could have learned the lesson in 10 years? 10 years of imprisonment in a foreign land? I would have got the lesson. Okay? Don't disobey God again. I get it. But in 10 years enough, I mean, did it have to be 70 years? 70 years, you're going to have an entire generation, practically two entire generations, who were raised in a foreign land, captives to foreigners, and they didn't do anything. They didn't even exist. They're not personally culpable for doing anything. I mean, is that really fair? Why 70? And if we're going to go that direction, why not 80? Why not 100? Why exactly 70 years? Well, I'll tell you why. You know 
that the reason that God's people were punished in the first place was because they committed three terrible sins. They committed idolatry, they committed ritual prostitution, and they even committed child sacrifice. People like that need to be punished. People who violate God's covenant need to be punished. But the reason for the length of their punishment was for an altogether different reason. One of the little laws that you and I don't really pay much attention to way in the Old Testament. One of the little laws that God told Israel to obey was something that it doesn't apply to us, and so we sort of skip over it. The law basically said that every seventh year that Israel was in the land that God gave them, every seventh year, Israel was to let God's land rest. No farming, no plowing, no harvesting. God gave them the land and God told them what to do with the land. God wanted Sabbath rest for his land. God commanded it even. Well, apparently, God's people failed to let God's land rest every seventh year. They failed to do that 70 times in a row. For close to five centuries, Israel considered one of God's commands to be optional. And this is how the previous book, the book of 2 Chronicles, ends. Right near the very end of that book, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. By the way, 2 Chronicles very well may have been written by Ezra. We read, He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. God was serious when he said, let my land rest. And God was going to give his land rest one way or the other. And if it meant gathering up all of God's people and sending them out, then that is exactly what God would do. And that's what he did. You see, when God gives a command, it is not a suggestion. It is not up for debate. God's directives are not part of a buffet that you get to choose some and leave the others. There are consequences for disregarding God. In the end, He will have His way. But when you and I Learn to quit resisting God. And instead we begin to worship God and obey Him even in the little things. His word becomes real. Why were they so precise? Because I think they may have learned the lesson of being imprecise. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, 
penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word will become personal when you worship him. Final lesson. Not everyone will worship with you. Not everyone's going to join in with you in worshiping God. Some people don't have any faith in God, so they're not going to worship Him. Others, like the old-timers in verse 12, they realize that things weren't exactly like before. We read in verse 12, But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads, who had seen the first temple, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple, but many others shouted joyfully. You know, apparently one of the things that was missing was the Ark of the Covenant. It's not mentioned anywhere. Otherwise, I think it would have been mentioned. Maybe that's one of the reasons they wept. Or maybe they realized after the foundation was laid that this temple isn't going to be as glorious and grand as Solomon's temple. I mean, back when Israel first came into the land, there were 600,000 men, not including women and children. Now, all of the people, men, women, and children included, numbered fewer than 50,000. Maybe that's why they wept. Things weren't just as glorious as before. Whatever the reason, it must have felt like they had come full circle. They, they know that God chose them, and they know that they disobeyed, and they know that they were punished, and they know now that God is restoring them, and yet they're sad. They're sad at the reconstruction of this temple, and I think it reminds us of a very important truth, that this temple, the temple of Ezra's day, isn't the final part of God's plan. They may not have realized it. They may have been looking for the Messiah in that day. They may have been looking for all of God's promises to be fulfilled in that day. But that, that's not the end result of God's plan. The end result of God's plan will not leave any believer sad. God's plan ultimately results in hope it results in joy. It results in glory. Because there would come a Messiah who would bring all of this to God's people. And that Messiah indeed has come. His name, he's the one we worship. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the one we worship. He is the one who sacrificed his own life on the cross. Why? So you and I could come to God. He is the only way to come to the Father. There is no other way, for there is no other religion, there's no other man, there's no, ever, no other thought, no other philosopher that made a way to bridge the gap between us and God that paid the penalty of our sins. No one but Jesus has done that. And so we worship Him. And we have full access to God. Complete access. God gives us every benefit of being a part of His family. He gives us comfort. He gives us love. He gives us assurance that He'll never forsake us. He gives us the knowledge that He is to us a Father. If you've ever missed a father, if you've ever had a father that fell short, we have a Father in heaven who is perfect in every single way. And He loves us. He embraces us. He invites us to come to Him through Jesus Christ. And if today 
you are ready to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you may do so simply by faith. Simply by turning to Him and saying to God, God, I'm ready. I'm ready right now to be your child. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I believe that He rose from the grave. I confess that He's Lord. If that is the sentiment of your heart, if that is the prayer of your heart, God will hear that. God will receive you into His own family. I've been a part of God's family for many decades now. So have many of you. And I would say to you that it is the best decision that I've ever made. The best reaction to an offer that I've ever been given. And God makes the same offer to you. Will you come to Him? All you have to do with Him is say yes. And He'll receive you.